passage this morning is in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, if you would like to turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, and keep your finger right around verse 14. As I was studying this passage, it reminded me, you know, that there's a family of uh, verses or passages in the Bible that don't make sense. Um, They confuse me. Uh, They make me wonder why. Take these three from Deuteronomy, for example. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 21 says, Do not cook a young goat in its mother's milk. Why? Why? I wonder. Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 11 says, Do not wear clothes of wool and linen woven together. That used to be called linsey woolsey. Remember that? Why? Why? Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 5 says, A woman shall not wear a man's clothing. And I ask the question, why? What possible harm, I wonder, can come from eating a cheeseburger or wearing a cotton and polyester shirt or giving my wife or girlfriend my jacket to keep her warm if she's cold? It's a bit strange, right? Well, the more I thought about these verses, the more I thought, well, you know, maybe the meaning is somewhere below the surface. There is this verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10 that says, For it is written in the law of Moses, Paul says, Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. That's one of those strange verses. And Paul asks, well, this can't really be about uh, oxen that God is concerned, is it? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, Paul says, this was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. Okay, Uh, so there's some symbolism behind those verses that we quote from the Old Testament. So maybe the meaning of passages like that isn't so much literal as symbolic, but now I want to ask, symbolic of what? So then, that brings us to this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting at verse 14. And if you'll notice, right at the beginning of this passage is one of those strange verses. Would you just follow along as I read through this section? Paul is writing, and he says, Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God himself has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Since now we have these promises, verse 1 of chapter 7 says, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So what's up? What's up with this passage, this unequally yoked passage, this passage that is based on Old Testament strange kinds of verses? What's up with this? 
well, I, I think we need to start with a couple of observations to give us some background to what's actually going on in Corinth. So let me just remind you again that the church at Corinth has been under systematic attack by a group of people that Paul has called deceitful workers masquerading as the apostles of Christ. And as a result of their attack, the Corinthians were beginning to lose their sense of identity. In fact, Paul would say, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the Spirit's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere devotion to Christ. So I think the issue is one of definition. It's about the question, what does it mean to be a Christian? And to help answer that question, Paul uses one of these strange kinds of verses that we've been talking about. And this tells us two things. First, it tells us that for Christians, what verses like the ones we started with uh, in Deuteronomy and in 2 Corinthians chapter 16, 6 verse 14 are symbolizing is the need for Christians to know who they are. Uh, on this side of the cross... Uh, The issue is not about cheeseburgers. It's not about clothing. It's not about yokes. In keeping with the pattern of the Old Testament, these outward pictures that we found there are pointing to some kind of deeper spiritual reality. Well, second then, in our passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Uh, What we want to know is what deeper reality is Paul pointing to? And I think we can summarize it by saying that Paul wants to define for us what I would call the essential marks of a well-defined Christian. And Paul gives us three of them. Uh, Each is rooted in some kind of false accusation being made, by the way, by these deceitful workers at Corinth. And so we'll need to take a look at the accusation or the insinuation, and then from that we'll gather what the mark is. So let's, this passage that we've just read is sort of surrounded in a sandwich form. There's the bread, there's the meat, and then there's another slice of bread. Let's start with the bread that sandwiches the meat, and look at verse 11. Paul is saying, We have spoken freely to your you. Corinthians, uh, underline that little expression, spoken freely, because there's an accusation that's being made there. The accusation, the insinuation that Paul is addressing is, you're being deceitful. You're not speaking freely to us. You're holding something back, Paul, uh, and Paul is having to defend himself. No, 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 we're not holding anything back at all. We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you. Now, there's the second accusation. Paul, you don't love us. You really don't care for us. You don't have our best interests in mind. That's the second in- insinuation that's in- included in this protect- particular passage. And then verse 13, as a fair exchange, he says, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts to us. You see that first slice of the sandwich? Now the second slice is down in verse 2 of chapter 7. So our passage is sandwiched between these two things that kind of connect it up. Paul is saying, make room for us in your hearts. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. The insinuation was that Paul had done all three. You have wronged us. You've corrupted the message. You've been exploiting us all along. 
So the issue here, the insinuation, is there's something deceitful going on in the Apostle Paul's ministry, and it does not have our best interests at heart. And by the way, that's a fairly common feeling that people have about us as Christians, especially as we start to share the gospel with them, isn't it? I had this uh, vividly brought home to me a couple of years ago. Uh, Holly and I moved up to the Minnesota area, Minneapolis area, about 10 years ago. And we had never attended one of those marvelous holodazzle parades that you guys have every year. So the very first year we were up here, we decided we were going to go to holodazzle. And uh, so we were making our way through the crowd, and uh, we'd taken our family, and one of our daughter's friends came along with us. And she's not a believer, she wasn't a Christian, but she had come along with the family. And we're making our way through the crowd, and we're trying to find a place to stand. And along the way, we meet a a young couple, and they're handing out gospel tracts on the street corner. And, and, I, and I was just so amazed, I don't remember the exact words that the young friend of my daughter uh, actually gave, but I was just so amazed that um, she said to us something like this, it's wrong for these people to try to convert others to their religion. And when I heard her say that, I thought to myself, you know, she sees this as a moral issue. There's a moral indignation that she's feeling here. It It is absolutely morally wrong for us to share our faith and to try to convert others. And not only did she see it as a moral issue, it's one that made her mad. She was indignant about this, that anybody would try to convert someone else. That's the way the world looks at what we attempt to do when we're sharing the gospel. They think it's a moral issue. They think it's absolutely wrong. And they get indignant about it that people would try to convert someone else. Now, I was thinking about this sometime later when I came across a story that uh, Tim Keller tells in his book entitled The Reason for God. And he tells a story in there about a man whose name is Mark Lilla. Lilla is a professor at the University of Chicago, and he was uh, telling of his own reaction to a bright young student who who was enrolled there at the Wharton Business School. To Lilla's absolute bafflement, this bright, intelligent, good-looking, sensible young student had decided to give his life to Jesus Christ. Lilla writes, I wanted to cast doubt on the step he was about to take. I wanted to help him see that there are other ways to live, other ways to seek knowledge and love and self-transformation. I wanted to convince him his dignity depended on holding a free, skeptical attitude toward doctrine. I wanted... I wanted, he said, to save him. Now later, when Lilla was thinking back on his emotions, he went ahead and wrote this next paragraph, which is really quite a confession. He said, the curious thing about skepticism is that its inheritance, just like religionists, just like me, have so often been evangelizers. Thinking about that, I increasingly want to ask, 
Why can't I be satisfied to let the religionists alone? Does my doctrine of tolerance mean I can be tolerant of their I can't be tolerant of their point of view? Is my desire to save them and to save others from them any different from their desire to save me? So far as I can see, Lilda says, skepticism has no good answer to that question. I don't have one myself. Do you see that confession there that he's making? Everybody wants to convert somebody who doesn't agree with them. It's just the nature of the beast. It doesn't matter whether you're a Christian or a skeptic. Everybody's trying to convert everyone else to their point of view. There's no escaping it. Well, then... What does Paul have to say about this if it's not a... What does Paul offer as advice? I think he gives us a better way ahead. Notice two things about what Paul does in this passage. First of all, I think he refuses to shut people out of the marketplace of ideas. Instead, I think what he does is to ask three things of potential objectors. He says, check us out. Now, that, that's what he can say in chapter 7, verse 2. Look, he says, we're being accused of being wronged, uh, wronging people. We're accused of corrupting people. We're accused of exploiting people. All you have to do is just check us out. If you'll check us out, you'll find that this is not the case after all. So, check us out. Examine the evidence. And then he says in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, give us a fair exchange. All we ask is just a fair hearing. If you'll just give us a fair hearing and let us explain ourselves. And then he says, open your hearts, which means suspend your doubt. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but we live in a very doubting culture, don't we? Talking with a group uh, uh, after one of the ABFs uh, recently, And one of the men in that particular group had been a a university professor all of his life. He attends our church here. And he said, you know, in university, I was taught to be skeptical of something until somebody could prove it to me. The Apostle Paul says, there's a better way to live. It's not to doubt everything until someone can prove it. It's to be reasonably open to new ideas and, and to explore them until you reach the point where you say, no, this can't possibly be true. There's something wrong with this. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is telling us to do here. So he refuses to shut people out of the marketplace of ideas, no matter how different, no matter how much we disagree. And secondly, he provides us a model with dealing with objectors. Um, First of all, he says, uh, do unto others. In order to get a fair hearing from others, we need to give a fair hearing. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't disagree with other people, but it does mean that when we disagree, we need to disagree agreeably. Now, all of us know about the shootings that have happened in Arizona in the past month or so. And all of us know that some of that has risen from uh, the incivility that's been going on uh, among the political parties. Now, not long ago, uh, some, a couple of people from our church said, you know, there is this thing called the, the Peace and Civility Pledge. And we would like you to check this out and mention it to the congregation. By the way, you can look it up on the Internet. It's just called the Peace and Civility Pledge, led by a group of Christians. And one of the lines in the pledge goes something like this. We pledge that when we disagree, we will do so respectfully, without falsely impugning the 
others' motives or attacking the others' character. We will be mindful of our language, being neither arrogant nor boastful in our beliefs. I think that's a pretty good statement. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is saying. Not just for others, but for us. I think a legitimate Christian stand says, Hey, wait a minute. We don't need to constantly be picking fights with other people. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is part of what the Apostle Paul is saying. And that means give them a fair hearing. Secondly, I think the Apostle Paul is saying, I think he does say it in verse 12, he says, we're not holding our affection from you. You're holding your affection from us. That just simply means that in this whole process of engaging people, uh, one of the things that we need to do as a part of sharing the gospel with people is give them our affection. They're not just numbers or notches on our soul-winning gun. They're not just people that we're attempting to convert. There are people that we're to care for. There are people that we are to love, that we're people that we're concerned about. In fact, remember the book by Joe Aldridge called Lifestyle Evangelism? He was once asked, what's the best method of sharing the gospel? And he said, it's this. Just love people until they ask you why. And then you give a reason for the hope that lies within you. Just love people until they ask you why. I think that's pretty good advice. Well, let me show you this one verse that's been really helpful to me. I hope it's going to be helpful to you. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 through 26. And I've highlighted a couple of the words in this verse. This is one of those passages I used to use when I would go out and do presentations in churches. Because there's always somebody that's going to ask the tough question. And it's always easy to respond negatively to them. So I committed this verse to memory, and I suggest it to you. It simply says, the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Do you see what that says? The minute we have quarreled, that very minute we have lost. We have stepped out of fellowship with God. The very instant we have entered into an argument, we have disobeyed the Lord we believe in. The Lord's servant, I didn't say this, Paul did, must not quarrel. Instead, he must be what? Kind. That's a part of the way the Lord's servants work. Must be kind to some people, the people we like, the people that are easy to get along with. Must be kind to everyone able to teach not resentful you know i don't know about you but when somebody disagrees with me i sort of harbor a grudge you're probably better than that paul says don't do that don't get resentful those who oppose him he must gently instruct in the hope that god will grant them repentance and i really think that's sort of a key phrase there you see i don't convert people My arguments don't convert people. I don't change people's hearts. The reason I cannot quarrel, the reason I can refuse to quarrel, the reason I can be kind and not resentful, the reason I can be gentle, and the reason I can have hope is because God will convert people through the message that we deliver in the right way. That's a powerful, powerful verse. So I would just suggest to you, based on this first insinuation, that the first mark of a well-defined Christian is that a well-defined Christian is a person whose life and words make it easier for others to believe in Christ.
Now the second uh, thing about this passage, uh, you see in this lump of verses, starting in the middle of verse 14, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? And all of a sudden now we're, we're starting to talk about moral kinds of stuff. And, and this was the insinuation uh, that if you become a Christian, Christianity will make you antisocial. Uh, I wasn't always a believer. I can still remember when I gave my life to the Lord, uh, one of the men I worked with said, you know, I knew a guy that became a Christian once. He went insane. It's sort of like if you become a Christian, you're going to be weird. You're going to be warped. It's going to do something strange to you. And for sure, it's going to make you antisocial. You're going to become one of those holier-than-thou cranks that everybody despises. Christians lighten up. That's what this insinuation is saying. And be honest, when I first read this passage, how about you, between, you know, all these different lists of things, my first impression when I read them is that, well, that's pretty demanding, isn't it, to live that kind of life? And that's exactly what the Corinthians were thinking and everything. Well, you know, maybe we do just need to lighten up. Maybe we do just need to, you know, back off a little bit. And Paul responds to that insinuation by talking about three things. He talks about a yoke. He talks about a list, and he talks about a command. And so we want to real quickly take a look at each one of those things, and you begin with the yoke. He says, verse 14, do not be yoked together. Now, a yoke is one of those bars that you put across the necks of two animals that hold them together so that when one of them walks, the other one must walk with them, that when one of them turns, the other one must turn with them. The yoke was uh, used uh, both then and now to keep animals plowing together. And uh, so Paul says, be really careful who you're yoked together with. Now, the first thing that ought to come into our mind as Christians about this yoke is what Jesus said. Because, you see, this isn't a negative, burdensome kind of thing. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light, and I will give you rest for your souls. And I think the first thing we're supposed to read when we read this passage, this is not a burdensome thing. This is a caring thing. This is a compassionate thing. The yoke that we're supposed to be yoked with is to be the yoke of Christ. Jesus cares about our burden. Now, the second thing that the Apostle Paul wants, to think, wants us to think about is that passage in Deuteronomy 22.10 that this comes from, Do not plow with an, oak and a, uh, with an ox and a donkey yoked together. Now, I don't know about you, I've never seen uh, uh, somebody try to plow with an ox and a donkey uh, yoked together. Uh, I remember reading a sermon by Ray Stedman, and he says, uh, once I was traveling in the Middle East, and I saw a, plow, a farmer plowing his field with a camel and a donkey yoked together. He says, and you know what? It was, it was almost painful for me to watch. He says the camel was three times the height of the donkey and its legs were three times as long as the donkey's legs and as they were striding along together uh, the donkey was trying to keep pace with the camel but he's running as fast as he can he just couldn't keep up and and the farmer was running along behind him was spanking the little donkey to try to get the little donkey to keep up and he says frankly I just found it downright cruel do you get the point 
The whole deal with the yoke, both of the images, is this is an image of compassion. This is an image of care. If we yoke ourselves with the wrong people, Paul says, what we're going to find is that we're going to be trying to run in a race that we can't run, try to live a life we can't live. It's going to be cruel, ultimately. That's Paul's basically concern, basic concern when he uses this image. Well, now about the list. The list. Well, there's light, darkness, Christ, Belial, believer, unbeliever, temple, idol. Now, do you notice something very important about this list? It's not about middles. It's not about shades of gray. It's about the extremes. It's about stark contrasts. It's about black and white. It's talking about opposites. Now, let me see if I can illustrate the point the Apostle Paul is making this way. Statistics tell us that uh, once a person becomes a Christian, within two to three years of uh, becoming a believer, we sort of uh, find out that we no longer have any non-Christian friends. We find ourselves surrounded with other Christians. Uh, They're the people we go to church with. They're the people we socialize with. They're the people we know. And we pretty much burn through all of our unbelieving friends, and sometimes we've even driven them away. Now, isn't that true? Well, so one of the challenges that churches have is to find ways of re-engaging non-Christians around them. And part of what I used to do was to lead seminars to help people think that through. And I remember explaining at one of these seminars, group of Christian leaders in a setting, and I say, you know, uh, what Christians need to begin to do is to figure out ways of developing what we call fishing pools. You know, fun events where you can get Christians and non-Christians alike together. We had a fellow in one of the churches I pastored. His name was Garrett Lightfoot. He was a golfer, loved golfing. Um, He said, you know, Pastor, what we can do, we can put together a golf outing and uh, let let me just go around from all the different uh, stores in town and I'll get little prizes and we'll just give people gifts and prizes for everything. And sure enough, that's what we did. You know, some people did golf pretty well and so... They'd get a good shot. Well, they got a prize for that shot. Garrett was walking around to make sure he spotted who did it. There were other people that, you know, they didn't do so well, and they'd take a shot, and, and you know, their, their golf club would go flying up. Well, they would get a prize for the, the, the golf club that flew the furthest. At the end of that day, everybody got a prize at this outing. And then we had a golf pro come in, and he happened to be a Christian, and he was telling us a little few tips about golfing, and this he said, this is what I learned. And, oh, by the way, Jesus has made a lot of difference in my life and you know if you'd follow Jesus it may not make you a better golfer but you know you're going to learn an awful lot from him just like I have and wouldn't you like to be a Christian it was a great great time Christians non-Christians getting together learning to interact developing a fishing pool well I finished telling the story and then I remember trying to get them engaged and say okay now what could we do in our community what could you do in your community that would be something similar that would engage people just like that what do non-Christians I ask like to do in your community sure enough this guy at the back said sin now do you see where he was he was thinking in terms of stark black and white he wasn't seeing in terms of shades of gray and I'd like to suggest to you that there are two ways of looking at people Christian or not we can see people in our common humanity by the way I sin too I don't know about you but I sin too I share a common humanity with non-Christians to that extent 
so we can see people in our common humanity, or we can see people only in their active sin. And that's what that person was doing. What Paul is doing in this passage is seeing people not in our common humanity. He's seeing people actively engaged in sin. And he's making a point that while people are always in need of salvation, people are not always committing adultery. They're not always engaged in act of murder. They're not always practicing idolatry. And even when they are, we need to find ways to stay connected with that person without being contaminated by their sin. That's what Paul is talking about with this unequal yoke. And that brings us now to the command, the third thing in chapter in chapter 6, verse 17. Looking at the command, there are three passages that help me to understand how to deal with my unsaved, non-Christian friend. Passage number one, what does it mean to come out and be separate? Well, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 and 10 gives us the practice of Jesus. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house... Many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. Sinners in their common humanity, and some of them were actively engaged in their sins. And when the Pharisees saw this, the man that could only see that people are in sin, when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciple, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, It's not the healthy who have need of a doctor, but the sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but I've come to call sinners. And so Paul would say, learning from our Lord, I become all things to all men, so that by all means I might save some. I remain connected up to not including the point of active engagement in their sin. Okay? Example number two. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. Paul is now talking to the Corinthians themselves. And here he says, I've written to you in a previous letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Hmm. Not at all meaning the people of this world. Now that's what I would have thought. Uh, who are immoral or greedy or swindlers or idolaters, because, you see, in that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater or a slander or a drunkard or a swindler. With such a person, don't even eat. Don't be unequally yoked together with someone who is actively engaged and pursuing their sin. Stay connected in our common humanity, but don't get so yoked that their sin drags you into a sin of your own. One third and final passage here. This one's really quite interesting because this is how the passage is often most used in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, and then verse 16, often used to refer to marriage. But look what Paul says. He says, suppose you're a brother. If any brother has a wife who is not a believer and she's willing to live with him. He must not divorce her. And if a woman who has a husband who is not a believer, and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? 
Now, the Apostle Paul never recommends that a believer and an unbeliever should enter into marriage. In fact, I think he strongly forbids that. But in case you find yourself in a marriage or one of the marriage partners is not a believer, Paul does not say run away. He doesn't say flee. He doesn't say try to get out. He says stay in there. He says hang in there. He says live with that person in such a way that they might become a Christian as well. What he's saying is don't be associated with people in sin that are actively engaged in sin if it will drag you in sin but stay connected with people in order to win them. Do you see those three examples there? So I would just simply say, I like the way this writer puts it, when we find ourselves in association with somebody who's in sin, it should be our urgent purpose to get out of that forbidden connection, that partnership in a wrong conduct. Just as Paul said, flee sexual immorality, He teaches here to get out of any relationship where you're a participant in the sin of another. The unequal yoke isn't just any kind of association. It is partnership with another person, any person, believer or non-believer, who is actively engaged in sin. I think that's the correct point. So mark number two, mark number two is this. A well-defined Christian is someone who is engaged in the world, but unentangled when it comes to sin. That's the balance we attempt to live. Now, issue number three, we can deal with this one relatively quickly. You'll see this one in chapter 6, verses 17 and 18. It says, Therefore, come out from among them, touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. Now, did you notice something about this? This is very subtle. He's quoting from an Old Testament passage, and the Old Testament tended to emphasize do and live. Do and live. And so Paul quotes the Old Testament. And the Old Testament says, come out and be separate, touch no unclean thing. And you could almost read it, then I will receive you. Then I will be a father to you. Then you will be my sons and daughters. That's the way the old covenant tended to talk. Do and live. Do and live. But Paul makes an interesting change. In chapter 7, verse 1, instead of saying do and live, he says it like, because you are alive, because of your standing in Christ, because of who you are, now you should live in a certain way. See it in chapter 7, verse 1? Since we have these promises, because of the promises, dear friends. By the way, don't, don't read past that too quickly. Um, the original language literally says, beloved. I think there's a social reason for that. Paul did love the people he ministered to. But we're beloved because we are in the beloved. We're beloved because Jesus loved his son. And when I become a part of his son, when I'm associated with his son, I become one of the father's loved ones. And that's one of the reasons why the word beloved is used in Scripture. Because I'm beloved of the father because of my relationship with Christ, therefore I live in a certain way. And then notice in the last phrase he says they're out of reverence for God. Because of your reverence for God, 
live in a certain way. So it's not do and live. It's because you have received certain things, therefore live in a certain way. That's the difference between living under the old covenant and the new covenant, which Christians now live under. I like uh, the way Martin Luther put this focus, focusing on that second point. The law came and said, I find this man a sinner. Let him pay. Let him die. Instead, our most merciful father sent his son into the world and said, Jesus, be thou Peter, that denier. Jesus, be thou Paul, that persecutor. Jesus, be now David, that adulterer. Briefly, Jesus, be the man who has committed the sins of all men. By your death, wipe out the obligation the law demands. You see that? The the reformers used to call that the wonderful exchange. And then writing a letter to one of his friends, Martin Luther put it this way. He says, oh, learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness. I am your sin. You have taken upon yourself what is mine and given to me what is yours. You became what you were not so that I might become what you are. Because of what Jesus has done for me, I therefore live in grateful response to him. I love the way Bill Hybels and Mark Middleberg put it in one of the books. All of the religions of the world, they say it's do, D-O, do, and you will be received. Christianity is that one religion that says, no, it's done, D-O-N-E. It's all been done. I simply receive what Jesus has done for me. By the way, that's what Christians mean when they talk about faith. When they say, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus? They're asking, do you believe you still have to do something? That's not right. Do you believe something has been done for you? If you believe that, then you can become a Christian. That's what we mean by personal faith. Well, there you have it. Three marks of a well-defined Christian. A life and words that make it easier to believe in Christ than to reject Him. Engagement in the world that stops short only when it comes to sin. And a non-holier-than-thou holiness that's based on grace rather than good works. All in all, I think that's pretty powerful stuff. And you know what? It makes me wonder. If you're not a Christian yet, in light of this passage, why wouldn't you want to be one? Why not? What's holding you back? And if you are a Christian, why wouldn't you want to live this way? Why not? What's holding you back? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you love us and that you want to see us whole and complete and free and confident and able to function exactly as you intended. Would you open our eyes, each one of us, at our point of specific need? Would you bring us to you 
or closer to you. Most of all, would you bring us to praise you for the great things you've done to bring life to us. In Jesus' name, amen.